Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show where we review episodes of black and white television that used to flicker across the screens of Britain between the Suez Crisis in 1956 and the Three Day Week in 1974, which is the golden age of British television. I won't have anyone say any different. In fact, in our house, we watch little else. <laughs> oh, right, there you go. That's lovely. Including, at the moment, we're catching up again on uh, Sergeant Cork. Oh, right, OK. We must review that episode, The Soldier's Rifle. Which oh, that's the one, yes, that's the one. I'm, I'm working towards it. With the unfortunate facial hair incident. And also, you have to watch out for what appears to be a moving chandelier. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> Ghost? No, it's a boom. Oh, right, okay. It's not the same as it As live television, which is one of those wonderful things that you don't see nowadays, but has a certain frisson about it. Um, anyway, in this episode, we are talking about the black and white episodes of The Saint, Series 3, and we have four for you. Count them. Um, the Imprudent Politician. I look at my notes. The Hijackers. The Unkind Philanthropist and the damsel in distress which is always a ruse as far as i can tell a reasonably varied bunch uh, i would say <laughs> and the imprudent politician i think the setup might seem familiar there's blackmail 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 somebody knows yeah and we know simon's views on that justine lord is a scheming bad girl a country house full of unpleasant characters, any or all of whom might be behind the plot. Boneheaded police, a safe, a drugged drink, which the saint does spot, a cosh on the back of the head from somebody he doesn't, and the inside of a boat. Yes, the unravels, and we are in London, England, as we were announced um, at the beginning, and um, Simon's introduction is described as the notorious um, Simon Templer in this. Quite nice, he always seemed to have kind of like a different adjective each time to describe him. Um, so this week he's, he's described as notorious. We are in um, High Westminster, where a politician is being imprudent. Like I said, this is a complete work of fiction and it's never going to happen in today's rigorously. Or even then. Yeah, or even then, yeah. I mean, I can't even think. Of, of a political scandal from the 1960s where, you know, it threatened the downfall of the government and people may have had to resign. Can't even think of one off the top of my head. No, nothing. Wait a minute, I'll have a think. No, got nothing. Um, I've got nothing. Um, what's quite interesting, this Anthony Bates is, is our politician and there's a scene sh shown where he has an audience with the Prime Minister and much like feature films in the early 20s and 30s, reverentially used to do um, in biblical epics was not show Jesus or in the message, the life of uh, Muhammad, the prophet, is never depicted. And it's much the same here. We just see the, we just see the prime minister's hand and here is his voice. You don't see anything else. Don't know anything else about him. It's just, um, just resting <laughs> gently on the tiller of state. Yes. Yeah, you just go, oh, that must be the prime minister. Anyway, you're right. Um, Anthony Bate is seen Good Time Girl. And uh, refreshingly, when we, when we review our last one, we finally come into the, like, the big bucks when it comes to, to, to blackmail and, and fraud. But um, in this one, it's only 700 quid they're after. 
Probably a month, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, there is that thing of, oh, just pay us this one-off payment, 700 month. It's a bit like trying to cancel an Amazon Prime subscription, you know, where you pay it and you think, oh, it's okay, it's only a one-off. Um, and then you check your bank statements and you realise, oh, it's just draining away. Um, so, yes, he's being blackmailed by a good time girl or a bad time girl, I guess you may want to call it. Um, there's a Mr. Big involved as, as to who it is. Um and so the only thing that can be done is Simon can come down to, like you said, the country house and try and get things in order. We've got a dazzling array of suspects. We've got slimy Michael Goff, who seems to be channeling early Alan Rickman. You should have been there with your brush and canvas, fellas. There's an action painting for you. Wrecked car, driver dead at the wheel. The 20th century all wrapped up in one picture. I'm not an action painter, Mr. Phillips. And that remark is in dreadful taste. Life's a series of bad jokes and death tops them all. Hey, did I say that? Well, who else would? Um, there is a, um, a bumbling professor, but he's kind of making some some strange phone calls. Got to wonder what's what might be going on there. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of suspects. He said there's another poison drink, which thankfully Simon is able to intercede with. And then as it goes on, who we think is the wronged wife, played by Jennifer Wright, um, she goes all Lady Macbeth. Gee, yeah, she goes full on for revenge. There's people we think might be involved in it. There's Mike Pratt getting just the same sort of treatment as he did in every episode of Randall and Hopkirk deceased, where he gets a good thumping. Um, and there's, as you said, there's some very lax policing. There's a scene where it appears that if only they searched a car, they'd be able to find a huge amount of evidence leading to the rounding up of the gang. And uh, no, they don't bother. But again, it's it's one of those things where Simon points out that, yes, there's police on their way. Don't worry, they're going to be here soon. And then he, he just has to be left sort of to his own devices um, and give people a variety of thumpings. But, yeah, there's a, there's a nice little scene towards uh, towards the end when we, when we finally get revealed um, who the villain is because we're thrown a faint because Michael Goff appears to be the person breaking into the safe to steal uh, the valuable government documents. But, no, he's just an opportunist. It's not him who's the real villain. Um, so, yeah, it's like you said, one of those country house guessing game ones, uh, which are, are usually quite good. I think maybe they're just using the same country house set and they just move things around. I mean, there's always the possibility that after each denouement, the country house gets sold on. To the next unlucky lot, like, a bit like the house in the Amityville horror. <laughs> um, it just keeps moving on to the to the next unlucky owner. But yeah, there's there's lots of lots of good fun um, in this. I suppose it gives us a little insight into the political setup of the early sixties. Although I don't think Anthony Bates' political leanings are revealed. No, I suppose. I of guess who he is working for. Yes, I mean, of course, Labour haven't been in power for something like. 13 years so you could probably have a good stab at it there's some nice location work and car chases mm -hmm. quaint bits of the home counties john moxie injects a bits of style into it and anthony bates character you know with that drive to the country mansion with discordant jazzy soundtrack and accompanying <laughs> echoey dialogue 
Somebody knows. Someone's got the original of this. Blackmail. Somebody knows. Who's got it? Who's got it? Five thousand. No, no. One million. You're mad. The alternative is nasty. Ending up being faced with a sign saying, No way out! <coughs> Neatly summing up his state of mind. Some might say it was on the nose. I thought it was okay, actually. Well, yeah, like I said, um, John Llewellyn Moxie said had a, had a long career within, within British television and then, because of his track record there, was able to, to go over to the US and, and write his own checks. I think one of the things he did was the pilot episode of Charlie's Angel, um, other genre-based things. But yeah, he was... He was kind of like a regular go-to guy who, you know, would, would get the job done very efficiently, but also with a great deal of style. Yeah, I was quite impressed by all of that because it's it's not the usual sort of fare that you get. We've talked about Peter Yates before, and I think he's mm. got um, another one coming up where you get a lot of car chases. So, I mean, there are some reasonable directors, you know, on the saint oh god yeah you know um james hill i think it's quite nice when you have those sort of like fledgling directors kind of proving their worth to say yeah look i can do this and if you look at peter yates now a few years after this he'd be directing robbery a couple of years after that he'd be directing bullets and then you know a few years later he you know, was receiving academy award nominations for best director yeah, so it's a cradle of talent mm, yes We've touched on it. For people who don't know, it's worth pointing out that the imprudent politician and good time girls and government secrets being put at risk by louche portrait artists was very much at the forefront of the public's mind with Lord Denning's report into the Profumo affair published only the year before. They even finished with the personal statement in the House of Commons and in spite of Simon's hard work, I'm still not sure if the blackmailers slash killers were brought to justice. Yes, maybe the you know sort of a noble ending as well. I know you mentioned our tropes, our list of tropes, also um, for trope spotters out there. There is also another messy search in terms of um, rummaging through a desk. I don't know how you got the time to register all those things. I mean, with all kind of like the ID or loyalty cards or things like that that we carry now. Someone was going through my wallet if they'd stolen it. It'd probably take a couple of days uh, to go through all the bits and pieces in there. But yeah, you can just tear things out of a very thin onion skin paper or kind of like a copy paper that you used to have when you used to have a typewriter. Uh, and you just think, well, now how on earth? Don't even know what they're looking for. Presumably a big sheet of paper the red stamp across it that says evidence. Or in this case, it was the MacGuffin was some trade announcement wasn't it or some government yes. contract and it was going to be in a sealed envelope with a big red wax seal which seemed to be <laughs> yes. incredibly easy to unstick and then restick because yeah, some... they don't even above a kettle do they they don't even kind of like hold it above a kettle as, it, as it's boiling and able to do it that way no because simon's obviously got in there because when mr villain the real one pulls out the sheet from the envelope, it's got one of Simon's self-penned drawings of the well, same. Yeah. Not a rubbish impersonation, but one a genuine one. <laughs> Not a homage. Not a fake, but a fortune. <laughs> Let's have a look at who was in this. Anthony Bates, 
last appeared in the elusive Elshaw, where he was up to no good, an expert on spies and spy masters. Uh, he could also do gangsters and mad scientists, as in The Saints, The House at Dragon's Rock, uh, with those pesky giant ants. <laughs> Elsewhere, 18 episodes of The Sullivan Brothers, 13 of Intimate Strangers, 24 of Couples, which I think is going out on talking pictures. And of course, he has two Avengers points, including the most recently recovered Tunnel of Fear, which he's not credited, which he pointed out last time. And he's obviously from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the TV adaptation. Yes, as, as the spy master. I'm sure he probably could do comedy. It's just that... He was just not given the opportunity. He's not got a comedy face. No, no. I think mild threat and menace probably would be <laughs> his spotlight entry. Looks good in a suit, though. Can't imagine him, you know, with just like a t-shirt and a gilet on wouldn't look right well interestingly in tunnel of fear he plays an escaped con and it doesn't oh, look quite right and i think in a sergeant cork he plays is it a union agitator he certainly plays a union agitator in something where you have to be i mean he does a reasonable working class accent i suppose but you sort of think that's anthony bates is his suit at the cleaners? Oh. Absolutely. He is an actor I would imagine used to have his own collar studs, both for style and luck. <laughs> anyway, he's a, a star. Uh, Jennifer Wright, single plays, five episodes of The Troubleshooters, 12 appearances in Emergency Ward 10, 12 in Gary Halliday, uh, which we discussed previously, uh, all five episodes of The Escape of RD7, for once, a series that involves female scientists tinkering with nature, storming that particular male bastion. Um, that was the rat destructor, if you remember. All right. Which may have jumped the species barrier, possibly. <laughs> How can we judge? Uh, the series has been lost. Justine Lord, again, uh, always the bad girl and revels in the part. Yeah, bad time girl, yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably written in her contract. More saints to come, and of course that precious Avengers point. Michael Goff, what can you say? A star with two points and 200 screen credits. Oh, there we go. All the way um, from things like Conga um, up to Batman. And um, do you know the connection with... Conga this? and Batman. One's a big monkey, the other one's a superhero. That's my guess. Maxwell Shaw, single plays. Danger Man, Man in a Suitcase, The Troubleshooters, UFO, The Persuaders... The Protectors and Special Branch. Uh, Jeremy Burnham, an actor with three Avengers points and as a writer, five episodes. Four of them very good, but one of them was Fog. Oh, and he plays a character called Tim Burton in this. I love that. On screen, he was in 28 episodes of United, the series set in a football club, and he guested in plenty of other stuff. And he's got another two saints to come. Um, Mike Pratt. A star who sadly disappeared too soon at the age of 45. Jeff Randall in Randall and Hopkirk, a regular ITC guest, including four appearances in Danger Man and 14 episodes in The Brothers just after the end of the Golden Age. Gene Marsh, Four Saints, 17 episodes of The Informer, The Third Man, That Twilight Zone, which uh, was on Legend recently, where she, yeah. played, she played the humanoid robot. And, of course, created with Arlene Atkins of the original Upstairs, Downstairs, in which she appeared in 54 episodes. Uh, I think she's still working with 104 screen credits in all. She is, yeah, still out there. I did catch up the other week 
um, while I was doing my afternoon ironing in The Eagle Has Landed, where she's a Nazi. Spoiler alert. Oh, that's right. She's the Nazi sleeper, isn't she? She is, yeah. I've quite forgotten that, to be honest. Murray Watson with his scene-stealing cameo, uh, a star. Absolutely. Murray Watson is on my celebrity stationery list. When I used to work at Ryman's in Great Portland Street, just off Oxford Circus in London, he was one of the many stars that used to come into our shop. And I, I pointed out to a fellow member of staff, hey, that's Murray Watson, and he's in The Grass is Greener with Cary Grant. And the fellow member of staff just stared at me blankly. <laughs> Wonder why I bothered. You don't remember what type of bond he had in his writing paper, do you? I don't know. I don't can't remember what he was in there. I remember we had Paul Daniels was after red um, carbon paper. We had Susanna York bought some birthday cards. And Kenneth Williams used to be in regularly to get his typewriter repaired. Oh, right. He must have given it some hammer. <laughs> yeah. Apparently he only lived around the corner, which so was just, just handy. And he was very, very pleasant and nice. Always, always chatted to us as a staff. Oh, right. good, good to hear. He could be a bit of a prickly character. <laughs> on all accounts, including his own. So, uh, yes, Murray Watson, 13 episodes of Quiller, 12 of Cat Weasel, 10 of Rumpole, a lot of work with Brian Ricks, uh, guested in almost everything, including The Avengers Once. That was after his 97 appearances in Compact. <gasps> John Bryan's a ubiquitous guest on TV, more than 100 credits, including one in Crib which is nothing to shout about, because we caught up with that. have to say, I disagree strongly with Leslie There's Halliwell. Okay, that will just have to remain unresolved. And one more person, uh, Jimmy Gardner, one point and a wide-ranging guest in many shows. Right, the, the next episode that we're reviewing is The Hijackers. What I have to ask, Dave, before you <laughs> summarise it, is how many times in this episode could the saint have contacted the authorities and wrapped the whole thing up without putting himself and others at risk? There's ample opportunity um, for, um, for this. Much like people say that um, a lot of 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even half of 1990s drama can be easily resolved if people just had a mobile phone. Just get on the phone and uh, you just, just phone them up and sort it. Yeah, I've done it. Which is why <laughs> crime has disappeared since the invention of the mobile phones. So, yeah, the hijacker sees us in Munich, um, Germany, just for those of you with, with a lack of geographic knowledge. And we're told we're celebrating Oktoberfest, which we're also told actually occurs in, I think it's September, isn't it? Mm. It's October. It's just, just kind of like the name. <clears throat> so we, we do get lots of um, footage of local colour or, as in this case, local black and white. Uh, and uh, then we, we finally cut down to those familiar back streets that we know and love. Um, and we see two U.S. Army soldiers, one of them played by David Healy, nicely, nicely Johnson from the Guys and Dolls revival. And they want to go and see the parade. Um, and they carelessly leave the truck, even more carelessly. Some very opportunistic thieves say, hey, that's like the kind of truck we need to steal. So it's handy they've just pulled up here and we'll steal this one. That does seem to be very fortuitous, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't seem as if they put much thought into where they could steal their truck from. 
so it just turns up then it's like you know what we'll have this one now whilst all that's going on simon meets an old friend of his hey i gotta get a shot of this the munich parade starring my old friend simon templer now we we know that either when meeting an old friend it can go one of three ways um at the end of the episode that old friend is still an old friend and thankfully still alive otherwise it can go down the route of where that old friend turns out to be a new enemy and the person not to be trusted um and then the third and perhaps the most the most distressing of the options is that an old friend becomes a, a new corpse as the episode progresses and as we meet our jolly army sergeant we have this worry that, oh, I don't think this is going to end well. And certainly, we're, we're absolutely right, it doesn't end well. Um, it appears that a gang um, headed up by Walter Gotell, amongst others, and Neil McCallum, um, plus some nasty Germans, have this idea of robbing the Army, US Army PX. Gonna steal loads of stuff there and obviously flog it on the black market. And part of this process involves them just turning up in their stolen truck and saying oh yeah we've got some paperwork and you know what i think the u.s army px deserves to be broken into with their lack security that they've got it wouldn't happen um, the naffy would it no, no because there's nothing come, worth stealing <laughs> no come down like an anvil um or, or on anything like this so anyway they pile up their lorry their stolen lorry um, with all their stolen goods uh, and the army sergeant buddy of um, Simon Templer rumbles that, wait a minute, there's something going on. So he wakes up and finds himself tied up. Um, he makes a bid to, to try and stop the speeding lorry. He is shot for his troubles just as Simon is arriving. Um, then there's a little bit of a chase to try and track the um, truck down. Um, and then, like you said, that the, the mechanism starts because it turns out that maybe his dead sergeant buddy, the girl that he was he was seeing, um, a good time girl, I think is a bad time girl. Uh, I, so I think we, we should point out that she's blonde, uh, she's 22, mm. and in this case, five foot nine. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, despite the poor security of the RPX, the villains appear to have got away with it. Um, and then there is uh, much shenanigans as to where, because then um, Simon actually steals the stolen truck. Can you steal something that's already stolen? I, I think you can. I think that's exactly what it is. You're still stealing, even if it's already been stolen. And he attempts then to to play um, the gang off against one another, maybe finding out who killed his, his sergeant buddy, um, preying on um, the vulnerability of Neil McCallum, um, the horrible, nasty um, Naziness of Walter Gotell, um, and it all comes to a head in a really brutal fight um, with someone using a flail. You know, usually you kind of improvise a weapon, you know, someone might have a knife or someone might have like a metal pole that they're swinging around at Simon. No, in this case, it's full medieval weaponry. And this is, um, a, this is a flail that they've threatened to break somebody's fingers with on a table. Yes. So it, it might explain the PG certificate or whatever it was at the front of the show there's that full-on punch-up and one thing that i immediately thought of 
it's really good to see that Roger Moore hasn't lost the old Ivanhoe skills. Yes, it's got those. Um, some other things which we may note as, as we go along it is meant to be like set, uh, as we said, in Munich. Um, but some of the location work, we think is probably home counties or reveals that Germany's autobahn system just looks like a big trunk road um, <laughs> and may need a little bit of work. So, yes, uh, um, uh, it turns out um, everyone, uh, the entire gang is kind of like wrapped up at the end. So, yeah, well done, Simon, um, for avenging his friend's death. Yeah, uh, as I said, I think he could have wrapped it up a bit sooner because he did put himself and others at risk. How many mm -hmm. times did he let people get away? And I'm not sure that was a the plan. There's a scene where he... he kind of like he thinks he's, he's overcome psychologically um, Neil McCallum's guilt and, and press that button. But then it turns out Neil McCallum then betrays him. And um, then he works on perhaps using um, Ingrid Scholler, using her as leverage. Um, and it does it just keep moving from one to the next. And then eventually the villains themselves start to turn on one because one of them is responsible for killing his sergeant buddy. And he's the guy who goes, crazy with the play. He's a nasty piece of work, isn't it? A nasty mm. Nazi. Um, <laughs> hate this guy. Trope Ahoy, he is saved by, this is Simon, he is saved by some girl slash wronged villain, both actually, at the mm. last minute when he's been very cavalier about his own personal security because she manages to phone the Politzai. Sadly, one of your favourite tropes. It would have been quite tough for the last line to be the title of the original Leslie Charteris story, which was The Unlicensed Vittlers. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult... That's a tough exit line, that is. Um, it's a bit like Tom Baker in his um, autobiog when he uh, states about being in a play at the National Theatre with Anthony Hopkins. A very serious play. Um, but one of the lines is, um, how have you been feeling yourself lately? Um, apparently no one could keep a straight face <laughs> no one could keep a straight face um, with that because it was the dread was they knew it was coming who was responsible for that line I can't remember I, I must look up go back to the book and find out which, which but like I said a very serious play you know you've got some heavyweights there yeah totes orcs Yes, I can imagine that they all had um, a big corpse on the stage. How, how have you been feeling yourself lately? Oh, I mean, it's, it's actually worse than the Morecambe and Wise line, I'm not feeling myself. Looks like as though you are. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, no. So who was in it? Um, Ingrid Schuller, uh, born Cologne. Her career was mainly in Italy, though she appeared in an episode of I Spy. Robert Nichols from California, a long career on both sides of the pond, inevitably guested in a lot of westerns over here. He was in a Benny Hill show in the early 60s. Ah. Neil McCallum, Canadian. Uh, last seen on Talking Pictures as the hapless Patsy Locum in the very last Rupert Davis Maygray a couple of weeks back. Ah, he's also the very sweaty man who investigates the alleged werewolf in um, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. All right. Oh, well, yeah. meets, a, meets a sticky end. 
1956, he was in four episodes of Space School. I have no idea what that could be about. Oh, I'd like to hazard a guess. <laughs> Why hasn't no one ever come up with that idea since? So yeah. Space School. Hmm. Later, he was in Moonstrike, The Four Just Men, uh, 22 episodes of Vendetta, uh, voices in Thunderbirds, appearances in The Troubleshooters, The Expert, Randlin Hopkirk, UFO, Jason King, Spy Trap, and The Protectors, quite a few single plays, but in spite of the breadth of that career, no Avengers points. And nor, surprisingly, did Walter Gattel, born in Germany, star... Uh, and the go-to man to be an arch-villain played the same character, General Gogol, opposite three Bonds. Three Bonds and Patrick McNee as well. A view to a kill together. Oh, right. Yes. They share in scenes, but they are in it. So that's yeah, Sean R. Rodge and Timothy Dalton. Um, there he was a Russian, but he played a lot of Nazis. Um, and as he was a refugee from them, he had some experience to draw on. This saint wasn't the first time he'd worked with Roger. He was a guest in Ivanhoe. Elsewhere, The Third Man, William Tell, Interpol Calling, Danger Man, The Human Jungle, The Baron, The Champions, The Troubleshooters, 55 episodes of Softly Softly as the Chief Constable, and his career extended to the X-Files. He's the first villain, the first Nazi, um, that the Zoo Gang tracked down as well. A finer Nazi you couldn't uh, wish to <laughs> capture. <laughs> Um, 172 screen credits in all. The villainous henchman, Boryev, uh, was played by Michael Collins, not the one from the Apollo mission. He has two points, the second ever episode under Kathy Gale. He guested in about everything, but what must have been a very good earner was the 312 episodes of The Newcomers he did in the 60s. Uh. But he also revoiced Gert Frobe's famous line in Goldfinger, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Oh, what a, oh, what, what a, what a claim. Would you like to attempt that better than I did? No. No, because <laughs> you've already done it better than I could. <laughs> Richard Shaw, a long career, 143 credits, but no points as regards the Avengers. Uh, Shane Rimmer, the voice of Yay. Scott Tracy, and a Canadian. Yay! Uh, a star with 168 credits, amongst those 30 episodes of Compact. Then there's Danger Man, Orlando, Doctor Who, Captain Scarlet and Space 1999. And he wrote five scripts for Jerry Anderson Productions. Oh, um, another Jerry Anderson regular was New Yorker David Healy, as you mentioned. Um, here uncredited is one of the soldiers who's had his truck stolen. Uh, a familiar face and voice on British television. And here's a shout-out for the memorably named Sadie Slade. Um, sounds like she could have had a series all of her own. Um, <laughs> she's uncredited here, as well as her 11 later appearances in The Saint, uh, and also in her one Avengers point, The Hour That Never Was, which is quite creepy. Oh, right. Oh, right. And I think that's the one where Ray Austin plays a dead milkman. There'll be more Ray Austin chat later on in this show. But one of his relatives, Austin Cooper, is also in this episode as well. That said, 60's second favourite car of the Ford Angular, um, Austin Cooper, um, does turn up in this one. Yes, even though it's Germany. 
Yes. I did notice that the saint had actually taken his car over to Germany as well. Yeah, we we find out uh, um, in um, one of the episodes coming up that um, he, he doesn't appear to have um, kind of like international export rights to, to take his Volvo everywhere. Because um, in one of the episodes coming up, doesn't have it with him. And that could be the next one, the unkind philanthropist. Yes. Take it away, Dave. Right, we are in, we've got very subtropical this week, um, because we are in Puerto Rico. Um, you lovely island, island of tropical breezes, as they see in the film uh, West Side Story. Um, and Simon has indeed got a rental car. Uh, and he's on one of those sort of vague holiday um, that he goes on every once in a while. And you wonder, kind of like a holiday from what? He doesn't appear to have done much over the past couple of weeks. But he is attracted to a young lady there, um, but she's not particularly attracted to him. And she explains what she is. She works for a large charitable organisation back home in the States who dole out money um, to deserving causes. And Simon thinks this sounds like a scam. It's got Nigerian prince scam written all over it. My former husband, who was the Minister of the Interior, needs your help. Please give me your bank details. And it turns out that she's legit. Simon contacts the head office back in the States, and it turns out, yeah, that is her job, to dole out cash. And she's got a very ambivalent Christian name, hasn't she? Yes, having a name which, um, is it a bloke? Is it a lady? And it's Tristan Brown. Uh, what an unusual first name. And so therefore, when kind of like the main plot kicks in and, and Simon finds himself um, defending a poor Puerto Rican farmer who has been gulled into borrowing money to um, grow hydroponic tomatoes, we can't even get regular tomatoes in the shops at the moment. So how am I going to get my hands on some hydroponic tomatoes? And it appears that he has been high pressured into making this business loan. And the reason why he's been high pressured into taking this business loan is because the villains knew that he'd never be able to pay back. And therefore, they would get their hands on his land, which is the perfect piece of land for a big factory a textile so factory i did wonder whether this textile factory was going to use process g i kind of hope they do uh, oh look at this simon resolves um the issue of the high pressure artist the only way he can through his fists and once that is done um the the kind of plot then kicks into play because simon realizes that wait a minute wait a minute if this money grubber is is such a money grubber what lengths will he go to potentially receive money from a beneficial organization based in the us um and you know what i'm going to pretend to be tristan brown and then there's all kinds of antics um people pay some advances people pay some money people pay money back to the people that originally paid the money um and there's lots of shenanigans and running around and I think one of the biggest surprises is towards the end is when the uh, property tycoon, American property tycoon, you should add, who was going to get his hands on this land. As soon as he realises it's a bit of a shady deal, he backs off. He wants nothing to do with it. And that's where we come to this denouement, which I'm still trying to figure out the mechanics of. How does 
this 10 minute loan work <laughs> i doubt that it's yeah because they're in the offices and the poor puerto rican farmer has to pay back this money it's midnight isn't it they've yeah. got they've got until it's like 10 minutes to it's a bit like the end of brewster's millions when you know it's a, it's a minute to midnight and i realize i've still got three thousand dollars to spend wait a minute it has always been a great pride with me sir to conduct my business honestly and the true tradition of the great state of south carolina mr garma sir would you do me the honor of accepting twelve thousand dollars for a period of 10 minutes yeah because at first the, the villain of the piece kind of refuses to take the money back doesn't he because simon's already next 20 20k right the loan was only 12 grand and but then not even simon who's normally minted has got Mm. that in his wallet and so everyone shrugs and then the southern millionaire says will you do me the honor of taking this money Mm. for 10 minutes and you think Yes, but then he'll have to give it back to the millionaire unless he's going to pay off his debt by midnight, in which mm. case he'll be in debt to the millionaire. But the, the the agreement with the millionaire doesn't have or doesn't hold his land as a guarantee. Yes, that's true. And then... I think it's just his kids who um, he has to give up in case he doesn't pay the millionaire back. That's right. There's quite a lot of family detail because there's roles for child actors who seems to be their only screen credit, as far as I can tell. But then the millionaire buys the farm. Now, one of the reasons why the poor Puerto Rican farmer was so upset about giving up his land because it contained the bones of his father and the bones of his father and then seems to be quite happy to become extraordinarily rich selling the farm or the factory. I presume that either the factory is going to be built on top of the bones or the bones are going to be moved to the new Um, farm. Reinterred, I believe the term is. But he does say with his newfound wealth, he will be able to have a proper tomato as opposed to some foolish hydroponic one. Yes, so it's all smiles again. And of course, the... The lady American philanthropist is besotted with Simon. She reveals some quite heavy feelings. Mm -hmm. She does. You know, one of the reasons she cites for her being so spiky earlier in the episode is she says, you know, I I can't help it. I'm falling in love with you. And commitment phobe Simon is obviously more focused on getting the hydroponics farmer sorted rather than the attention of a lady with a bloke's name. But he does seem to offer the consolation prize of a week before he flies off, which makes him... The unkind philanthropist. It's the way I'm made by nature. I'm a very unkind philanthropist. (laughs) The title of the show and the very last line. Tropetastic. Who's in it? Charles Farrell. Farrell. Don't know if he's in relation to Colin Farrell. Born in Dublin. Comes across uh, as a poor man's Walter Matthau. <laughs> yeah. 
This is his only Saint uh, elsewhere. Appearances in Danger Man, May Gray, Dixon and Doc Green, Zed Cars, Ghost Squad, Sentimental Agent, The Visible Man, Robin Hood, Police Surgeon, amongst others. Oh, yes, and one Studio Avengers. Patricia Michon, Mitchin, however you choose to pronounce it, an American with a career on both sides of the pond. Here, The Saint and Vendetta, over there, 77 Sunset Strip and Richard Diamond and innumerable westerns. <laughs> David Graham has an astoundingly long career and still appears to be going at the age of 97. During that time, he's been providing the voices for Daleks in Doctor Who, Thunderbirds in various incarnations and every Jerry Anderson series from Four Feather Falls onwards. Most lately, he's been Grandpa Pig in Peppa Pig, as well as Snork in Moomin, 133 credits in all, one of which is an Avengers point. Sarah Brackett, an American, has no points, but appeared in two Danger Mans and 10 episodes of Counter-Strike, I think it is, uh, at the end of the 60s. This was her last saint, and she was previously in Series 1's Element of Doubt. Well, I think she played a nurse. John Bloomfield, we've seen before. Welsh, 28 shows credited as an actor, including Three Saints, but forged a considerable career as a costume designer. Anthony Morton, one saint, but best known for 597 episodes of Crossroads as Carlos the Chef. Oh, a temperamental chef as well. Even I, more temperamental than Shuey McPhee. <laughs> I remember him. I thought... I, I, I was watching this. I thought I'd seen him somewhere before, and then <laughs> I looked him up. I presume Carlos, the chef, was probably a refugee from the Spanish Civil War. I would like to think so. Yeah, um, Crossroads always did pride itself on a lot of political socio backstory. That's right. He probably knew Michael Portillo's dad. So Larry Taylor, 152 credits, one point and seven saints and appearances in almost every ITC show. And Zulu. And Zulu. All right. It probably wasn't playing a Mexican or Hispanic type, which was his speciality. Mm. He did that reasonably convincingly, although he was from Peterborough. <laughs> Swarthy and quarter of Peterborough, I think. Yes, with that moustache. That's what made his career, I think. So that brings us to the last episode. And for the same, the phrase damsel in distress always comes with a health warning, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, we use, I mean, the other week we had that almost like that meta um, episode of, of where it's those two students who are in the bar saying that, oh, I bet... Someone's going to come up and say to Simon Templer, but I'm in terrible danger, Simon, and you need to help me. Um, and indeed, someone does a little bit later on. Um, so this is sort of like a familiar aspect. Um, but we start the episode um, in London, England, and uh, it transpires. It's I know we said about Simon going on one of his holidays, but in this, it seems to be a night off for Simon because he is at home. He is entertaining. Um, he's got his best cocktail glasses out and everything seems to be going all right until he is rudely interrupted by a very voluble Italian who is convinced that Simon Templer and only Simon Templer can help him because it turns out that his daughter um, is in the family way and has a bambino 
Um, and I always love it when when you, you do have um, characters with, with foreign backgrounds. Every once in a while, just to remind us that they have a foreign background, they will drop in a, a language, um, you know, a, a, a word. It's like Nazis in films usually can speak perfect English, apart from the words nine and yar. Um, for some reason, they've not mastered yes or no, but all the other, everything else uh, um, they can do. Anyway, Simon's deal that he's offered is that he needs to bring back this itinerant boyfriend stroke her potential husband um, because they have done a runner um, back to Italy and they want to overcome this family shame. Now, thankfully, family seem very well connected. They've loads of cousins and nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles. Um, dotted all around Italy. So they're able to um, employ that network to to try and track the person down. Um, I did mention before, when we were talking about um, the um, improved politician, that it was only like 700 quid that they were looking for, blackmailers. In this case, this errant farmer, he's gone big because he is alleged to have embezzled one million pounds. Which, which was worth un- something in back in the 60s, yeah. wasn't it? A million pounds was worth a lot of money. Uh, and yeah, you know, that's for the, you know, for an episode of The Saint in the 60s, that's big money. That would be like the gross national product of like Luxembourg. Or Puerto that's Rico. That. Yes, or Puerto Rico. So through a series of machinations um and all these like lively relatives uh, including john bluthel i think who's, who's also over there um simon is indeed able to go over um to italy um have some italian themed adventures and managing to bring the person back to justice um there is obviously a dark-haired lady in the way i don't know whether she's to be trusted at all that's catherine woodbill as Barbara Astral, because she appears to be the partner of this fraudster. It's not a happy and, relationship, though, is it? No, as she says, all I've been doing is sitting around here waiting for you to grow a beard. Mikey, that's that's not the basis of a good relationship. It really is. But what happens is, um, you mentioned uh, you know, the, the previous episode, uh, the unkind philanthropist, where Simon pretends to be someone else with barely a hint of an accent or a beard or anything like this in this one he is able to go full-on disguise by putting on a very convincing italian accent and i think roger must have been fluent in italian must have been because he handles the dialogue very very well he applies for the job as a chauffeur at this disagreeable family home and then yeah it, it then becomes intrigue because their current butler Arthur, played by the usually silent, swing-fisting Ray Austin, he's not to be trusted at all. He wears a dirty jacket, he smokes everywhere, and indeed there are several punch-ups. Yeah, I think this episode belongs to Ray Austin. He does, got a character name. He's... A surly butler who would have made mincemeat of both James Fox and Dirk Bogard in the service. <laughs> and he probably comes from, via the same agency as Julian Glover's chauffeur in The Lawless Lady. If, if, if you want a criminal servant. Yeah, don't check references. You know, and it's not even like a rehabilitation scheme of allowing someone who's gone bad 
to go good. This is just allowing someone who's gone bad to get worse. I think it's probably the largest amount of lines Ray Austin ever had on the screen. I mean, he pops up in Sergeant Cork twice and he knows how to deliver dialogue as well as a punch. <laughs> but to be honest, in fact, apart from him, I don't think there's much to recommend this saint. It's, it's slightly incoherent in terms of plot. Yeah, it's a bit messy. I mean, we've got Vector Claude Eustace Teal does turn up. We kind of hope that if, you know, he's going to Italy, maybe Warren Mitchell will turn up with, his, with the world's smallest taxi. But, he, um, but the world's smallest taxi in Florence is driven by John Bluthor, who not only has the world's smallest taxi borrowed from Warren Mitchell in Rome, but the same moustache. Yes, John Bluthor. Is he a vet in this? I think he is, isn't he? Yes. He's, well, um, no, he's a dog primper, whatever. You right, yeah. It. Don't use the word groomer. just sounds so wrong. Does shampoo and sets for poodles and uh, and stuff <laughs> like that, I think. I'm not quite sure where he's in on what turns out to be a double cross. Mm, yeah, it's not as straightforward as we've been led to believe. That's right. After knocking seven bells out of Ray Austin, Simon <laughs> actually manages to drug somebody else's drink, I think, for the first time. <laughs> Here, drink this. You're good. Got to hope there aren't any other whiskey aficionados in the house. Cool. I tell you what, wouldn't get past it with Filey Whiskey Distillery. Like I said, that I enjoyed the pleasure of last night. Didn't even know there was one there. Anyway, this particular villain downs his dose in one and very soon becomes legless. Catherine Woodville's character then comes down from the room that she's been sent to to find Ray Austin in a heap and then does what any criminal on the run would do, phones the police to stop Simon. There's a chase round uh, the Italian countryside that looks suspiciously like the home counties. That's right, because they have to get to that airport, don't they? They have to get to that airstrip. Forense uh, Aero Club. Yes, to ensure that they can take off in a plane that looks as if Airfix have had a hand in it. And the thing that I hadn't realised was that Simon's got a pilot's licence, or at least has learnt. Tell you what, it's unbelievable what he knows. Fluent Italian and able to fly a small yeah. plane all the way from Tuscany to the south of England. Who knew? Hands over the bloke to uh, Paul Whitson Jones's Italian restaurateur and then says, oh, if the wedding's tomorrow I must, or this afternoon, I must go and have a shave. They think that he might suspect something. But as he's gone off, they're not particularly bothered and decide to take the errant boyfriend, or is it, is merely the embezzler to task and threaten him with a fondue fork. It's a deadly weapon in the hands of a profession. Um, yes, and I, w I wouldn't really want to take on anyone brandishing such an implement, but it turns out that all of this is just so that they can get their hands on the number of the Swiss bank account that he's put the money in. And the supposed wronged woman is in fact Paul Whitson Jones's daughter-in-law. Mm. The child is his grandson, granddaughter. Can't remember. Just a prop. <laughs> basically. And then Simon comes back with Inspector Teal. Yeah, thankfully, he just turns up to clear up the mess. Uh, I mean, but Simon has a bit of a rough ride in this. Like I said, he has got Ray Austin to clash with. So there's a lot of fisticuffs there. He also goes down the route of being put in a car that has, you know, no brakes. Well, how's he going to? How's he going to get out of this? 
I mean, hurtling down a cliff-top road as best as can be recreated in the home county. I wasn't worried, though, because it wasn't a white jag. Yeah, so it's all going to work out right. Don't worry yourself. And just to show that he admires the chutzpah, I know that's not Italian, but <laughs> of the restaurant family, and possibly so he can get free meals there for the rest of his life, he just points Claude Eustace Teal in the direction of the embezzler and says that the family had nothing to do with it. In fact, they were part of bringing him to justice. So it was all smiles again. I can't remember what the last line was. No, no, I don't. I don't know. The damsel in distress. That'd be, again, that'd be a tough one to shoehorn in. Actually, you could apply it to almost any saint episode, I would, would have thought. <laughs> so, yes, who's in it? Richard Stapley, Stapley. Um, confusingly, also known as Richard Wyler. Um, yeah, now, I'll tell you what's interesting in this episode, because for a while, I don't know whether you've noticed this guy, for a while, what did happen is you would get The Saint, starring Roger Moore, and then you'd have the name of the episode, and then we would be treated um, to the big-name guest stars who are in that episode. You just go, wow, look, look at so-and-so's in this. Wow, yeah, great. But they've not done that for weeks. There's been no guest stars at, at the beginning. But then this week... The carrot that we have dangled in front of us is that uh, the guest star is Richard Wyler. And I just go, who's he? Who's he? Who's he when he's at home? Who's he? That should warrant a guest star kind of like just after the end, the opening credits. When all the people that we've seen um, in the episodes that we've been mentioning, all those big names, perhaps like David Graham. Michael Goff. You know, yeah, Anthony Bate. Um, none of those get a look in. I think possibly having an alias has made things uh, a bit more confusing. This is the first of two saints for him, and he's got a wide-ranging career on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, he's also been in The Baron. Uh, he played the same character twice in The Troubleshooters. Uh, another uh, character um, twice in The Main Chance. Also, he was in Zed Cars, Jason King. But most importantly... He had 40 episodes of The Man from Interpol as Agent Anthony Smith. All right, OK, hey, there you go. Not to be confused with Interpol calling. No, or International Detective. <laughs> but I suppose that would have meant that he had enough profile to get that guest star billing. Yes, but to say, look, we've got, a, we've, we've got a big one this week, fellas. We've got Richard Wyler. Great. Brilliant. <clears throat> but uh, I think he also been in been on stage with quite a few heavyweight thesps and i think he may have written uh, a book or two catherine woodville last seen as the law secretary in the scorpion in this she reverts to the trope of dark hair equals bad girl two avengers points and as discussed she was briefly married to patrick mcnee then moved to the states to appear in many series there paul whitson jones we've spoken about before he has four points and was a stalwart through the 60s. He appears a couple of times, I think, in the first series of The Saint, particularly as that Spanish, well, say his farmer, the guy who was in charge of the chainsaw thing that the woman in the garden... Oh, right, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, wasn't a huge part, but um, obviously he was uh, more voluble and temperamentally Latin in this one. Harold Casket. Now he's got two points, and elsewhere he was in Maygrave, Zed Cars, Danger Man, Jason King, 
Department S, Interpol Calling, Robin Hood, Hancock's Half Hour, Spider's Web, Budgie, can't win them all, The Tomorrow People, um, a stalwart with 118 credits, but not a face that I immediately recognised, I have to say. No, no, not a reassuring presence. No, it looked slightly untrustworthy and unshaven, which might account for the reference about the beard. Yes. John Blothall, Bluthall, I must confess I don't know how to pronounce it. He gets the role and the moustache that Warren Mitchell has whenever the Saints in Rome. He has one point in a career which covered nearly everything, particularly Spike Milligan, and of course 41 episodes of Nevermind the Quality Feel the Width, but also 39 episodes of Fireball XL5. 140 screen credits, a star. And was um, still working because he was in Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers film. Yeah, yeah. I think he died the same year, actually. Uh, no longer with us. Quite sad, but a hell of a career. Camilla Haas, uh, dark-haired and therefore not to be trusted. Robin Hood, the troubleshooters <laughs> and the prisoner. The uncredited Michael Dempsey, one point, but 16 saints. Hugh Elton, two points. Uh, three prisoners, seven saints. Paul Phillips, two points, four saints. And writer Paul Erickson did well out of series three. He wrote The Scorpion and The Hijackers, as well as this one. But he did even better out of Crossroads, 75 episodes. Wow. So um, that must have been a tidy little learner. So there you go, four episodes of series three of Roger Moore's Black and White Saints. We've still got a few more to come, haven't we? We have. Well, uh, the next one is is the contract um, in which a, um American Air Force major puts a bounty on Simon Templar's head. That sounds kind of pretty standard fare, but the interesting thing for fans um, would be this episode is going to be directed by Roger Moore. Oh, another one. Oh, so that'd be quite interesting to see how much time Roger spends on screen. He doesn't have to pretend to be the hitman as well, does he? <laughs> He's hired to kill himself. By the looks of it, we have some familiar faces. We have Robert Hutton and John Bennett, who we've seen before. Reassuring presence of Ivor Dean um, as well, plus some other little treats along the way, including the Henry Higgins of Hollywood, <gasps> Richard Easton. Oh, there you go. So we'll look forward to that one. You've been listening to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show, and we've been reviewing four episodes of the Black and White series of the Saints Series 3 with Roger Moore. My co-host has been Dave Newell. I'm Guy Morgan. We will return with more saintly nonsense later on. And in the meantime, if you care to, please write a review on your podcast provider and uh, say nice things about us because we're going to carry on doing this whether you do that Absolutely. or not. It won't cost you anything. Won't cost you anything. Politeness costs nothing.